Now again, the title of our entire series is God is Love, but with a big question mark. The Bible repeatedly affirms not just that God is lovely or that God is loving from time to time, but that He is the personification. He is love itself. And that is a big, bold statement. And just like we saw the other night, just like we saw last night, the bigger the claim, the greater the evidence required to support it, to verify it, to validate it. Last night, the claim was simply that God's Word is trustworthy, it's reliable, it can be trusted, it's accurate. And God makes this claim and gives evidence to support it. He simply says, I can do things that nothing else claiming to be God, nothing else you can believe in, will actually do. And that is simply tell you the end from the beginning. If I am truly the eternal being, I should be able to say the early things and the late things before it happens. And you should be able to sit back and watch it come true. And sure enough, the Lord in Daniel chapter 2 gave that dream to King Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation through his servant Daniel, where he saw Babylon and then all the subsequent empires, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, divided Rome, and we're living at that time. And he says, this is the history of the world 2,500 years before it even takes place. And think about all the millions, billions, perhaps even trillions of people that have come and gone during that time, and yet God's Word says, just keep watching, and this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and lo and behold, exactly as He said it unfolds, it will. So God is trustworthy. He is real. His Word is what it claims to be, the very Word of God. But now we shift our attention to night number two. Okay, if God's Word is so true and accurate, and if God is truly this powerful being who he claims that he is, then why is the world around us in such a mess? Basically, it's the the difficulty that everyone faces at some point. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? If God is a loving God, if God really is love, and if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, if he's aware of the problem, he has the power to fix the problem, and he has the love that he wants to solve the problem, yet the problem still exists. What does this tell us about the character of the God that, cl- that wrote the Bible? Okay, so what if he's strong? Does that mean that he's... I mean, think about the implications here. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, so he knows about the problems, he knows about cancer, he knows about uh, natural disaster, he knows about war and all the different problems and yet he doesn't fix them, then we're faced with a dilemma. Is he not as powerful as he claims? And he's got a very weepy, bleeding heart, and he'd love to do something, he just can't. Or is he all-powerful and he absolutely could do something, but he's not as nice as we think he's supposed to be, as he claims to be? What's the problem? But obviously there's a problem. What's going on? So what if the Bible's true? What does it tell us about its author? Is God really love? That's the big question. So tonight we're going to dive right into that question. It's the question most people are wrestling with, and we're going to find a solid, biblical, and I think convincing, powerful answer to life's biggest questions. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity to come together and to study you and your word. Help us to understand that word 
and see that you are who you claim to be, not because we just want it to be that way, but because you demonstrate that this is true. Help us to see it clearly tonight in your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to the book of Matthew, page 948 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 13. The question that we just described, how can there be such a good God in a bad world, was taken up by Jesus himself. The good thing is we don't have to make up an answer. Jesus actually recorded it for us. He actually had a parable addressing this. And we're going to start tonight with Jesus' addressing of this question. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to begin with verse 24, page 948 in your pew Bible. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Of course, tares are bad seed, they're weeds. But, verse 26, when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Now, I've had this issue with gardening this very year. You put out a seed, and immediately it doesn't just start to take root and pop up. You have to wait. Looks like dirt. Another day, it looks like dirt. Then you start questioning, did I plant anything at all? I just see dirt, right? And then stuff starts to pop up. But you don't know exactly what it is yet. Is that a weed? Is that a real good plant? Is there any fruit yet? What am I looking at here? So it takes time to develop, right? And apparently he's using this metaphor to explain this big problem in life. Again, verse 26, But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares appeared also. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Now, this is a perfectly logical question. Who are the people asking the question? According to the parable, who are the people asking this question? The servants. They're the ones who serve or work for the employees of the sower, right? The man who owns the field. And they come, and who are they asking this question to? The owner of the field, are they not? They said, sir. Or in our modern language, boss, how is it possible? You said that you sowed good seed in your field. Yet we look at the field, and once the crop has come up, we see that there is a mixture of good seed and bad seed. There's wheat and there's tares. And notice the implication of the question. Who do they think did it? The boss. Did you not, notice their almost accusatory tone, did you not sow good seed? Then how come it has tares? And notice the boss's answer. Verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Basically saying, I didn't do it. Somebody else did. It's not my fault. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Then the servant said to him, well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? I mean, surely now that you're aware of the problem, you want us to solve it, right? But he said, no. Now that seems a strange answer, but look at his reasoning. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. 
This is going to be a crucial thing. But even in the parable, we start getting picture of the character of the sower. His concern is for the wheat. Right? He says, no less while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. The reason I don't want you to go and fix it now is because if you fix it now, you'll do damage to the wheat. No, lest while you gather them up, you also uproot the wheat with them. Verse 30, what's his remedy? Let both grow how? Together. Let it just go. Let the thing go, run its course. Let them both grow together until when? The harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he says, do you want us to solve it now? No. But there is a time coming, what he refers to as the harvest, when then I will say to the reapers, okay, now gather up the tares and bundle them in for the burn, and the other ones of wheat gather into my barn. There's one group that's going to go to the burn, one goes to the barn, and at that time we will harvest, and that time it will be ready. But for now... Let them both grow together until the harvest. Now, that was the end of the parable. He doesn't say what it means. You're kind of left to wonder what, you know, decipher it for yourself. But the disciples apparently caught on that this is a big deal. In fact, we go over to verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now, if, if you were to read through Matthew 13, you'll see that that was not the only parable that Jesus told. He told several, parable after parable. In fact, it was apparently a storytelling day. But this one particular parable was seriously uh, itching them a little bit. They said, you can't just leave us alone. Now, all the multitudes have gone away. Give us the inside scoop. Explain to us the parable of the sower in the field. And that is in verse 37. And watch how Jesus strips away all the mystery and says exactly what each symbol represents. He answered and said to them, by the way, you can start filling in the blanks now on your worksheet. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is whom? The son of man, which is Jesus' reference to whom? Himself, right? The sower is the son of man. The sower is Jesus himself, the owner of the field. Now, what is the field? Verse 38. The field is the world. Okay? So the sower is the Son of Man, or Jesus. The field is the world. He goes on to say, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, which would be the righteous, right? The good guys, if you will. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So the wicked, or the unrighteous, or the bad guys, if you will, right? Now it goes on to explain, verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is whom? The devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are whom? Angels. Now notice this, in his parable, who are his employees? Who are his workers? The angels, right? And apparently... According to this, those servants of him, the owner of the field, the ones who would do the harvesting, the reapers, according to Jesus, are the angels. Now we go back to the parable and we notice that who is asking the questions about God? It's the angels, the servants. Is it possible, friends, that even the angels 
have the questions that you've been asking tonight. If God is really so good, if he's so powerful, if he's so wise, he's so great, how is this evil, this wickedness, is this disastrous situation even possible? And don't you want us to go fix it? And apparently his answer is no, not yet. No, not yet. The enemy sowed them is the devil. Now, what's fascinating about this, Jesus said, the good seed. And if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, we can do this very briefly. On, in your pew Bible, it's literally page 1. It's the very first page of the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. He says, the field is the world, and who created the world? Well, we know that God created, right there in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you were to also study your Bible in more detail, you'll find out that the member of the Godhead specifically who did the creating of the world was Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says that very thing. Colossians tells you the same thing, that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So here it is, Jesus Christ creating the heavens and the earth, and in what condition does he make it? Well, we can just do a very brief scan. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. And God saw the light that he had made on day 1, that it was, what's the word he uses there for it? Good. Go to verse 10. We're going to do this very quickly. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together is the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. All right, let's go on to verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was, what's the word? Good. Let's go on to verse 18. Oh, if we'll start with verse 17, get a full sentence in there. God set them, that is the lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars, in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and winged birds according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25. Let's go to verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's look at one more. The very last verse in Genesis chapter 1, after all six days of creating, what does he say? Then God saw how much? Everything that he had made, and indeed it was what? Very good. It doesn't just say good. It said very good. God created through his son Jesus Christ this world, which he calls in the parable the field, and he says, here's the condition. I made everything good, 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 and by the end of it, I looked back on the whole thing and said it was very good. Question, how much sin did God create in the Garden of Eden? None. He said, I didn't do it. But in the parable, he said, who did do it? An enemy. And in the explanation of the parable, he tells us who that enemy is. He said, the devil is the enemy who did this. You know, it's interesting. The devil has done a great job of making us think that God is bad and that he himself doesn't even exist. For instance, if you win, if you win some major prize, you say, oh, I'm so lucky Something good happens, oh, it was luck. Something bad happens, a tornado hits your house, oh, that was an act of God, right? Anything bad, God did it. Anything good, well, I'm just lucky, right? Somehow he makes us think that God is bad and that he just doesn't exist. And apparently the angels had this picture in their mind. They said, whoa, 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 whoa. 
How, if you're such a good God and you planted such a good field, is there wickedness? And his answer is, an enemy has done this. Let's learn about this enemy. We're going to spend several nights now looking at the enemy and all the problems he's caused, not because we want to know more about the enemy, but because we want to learn more about God. But an enemy has stepped in front of us in God, has tainted our view of the character of God, and we want to reveal that from God's Word. Isaiah chapter 14, that's page 667, 667. Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12. There are a couple places in Scripture that give us an inside look at this enemy of Christ, the devil or Satan. Okay? It tells us about him, where did he come from, and the question or burden of our task tonight did God make the devil? Did God create this evil that we find? Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. Here the prophet is looking back on the instigation of evil. And notice what he writes in verse 12. How you are fallen from, from where? Heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now Lucifer, because of what he chose to do in his life, has not a very nice connotation. I'm guessing very, very few people name their children Lucifer. If they do, they're in to visit this psychologist later on, probably. But Lucifer, right, means light bearer. Lucifer is light, is light, light bearer. And he was this glorious being. In fact, watch what he describes here, but we'll get into that in a minute. But he so does, apparently he was in heaven. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. And why was he cast out of heaven? Verse 12, uh, 13. For you have said, and this is crucial, where is he saying these things? In your heart. Now, I don't know what he's about to say in his heart necessarily, but let's think about this. I'm guessing that there are some things that you think in your heart that you don't necessarily say out of your mouth. Now, some of us get in trouble because there apparently isn't a stopgap between our mouth and our, you know, what goes on in the inside of us, and it just kind of comes out. But I would, be, I would be willing to wager that there's some thoughts that you're thinking even right now that you're not even expressing on your face. You might be thinking, well, I don't want to guess what you're thinking because it might hurt my feelings, you know, but you might be thinking something negative, but on the outside it's all, oh, good, 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 good. But notice this, he's saying it in his heart. And by the way, do I know what's in your heart right now? No. People are saying, praise the Lord, you do not know what's in You cannot read my thoughts. You cannot mind my heart. But somehow, God knew what was in this guy's heart. And he could read his mind. Watch this now. Verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I, and you notice in your blank, there's a, uh, there's a little blank there in your worksheet, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. What kind of thoughts are these that are going on inside of Lucifer? Selfish, boastful, arrogant, self-aggrandizing. I, 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 I. Some commentators have rightly said that Lucifer had an I problem. Right? All about self. I will ascend, I will ascend. But notice he's saying this in his heart. Perhaps on the outside he doesn't look selfish, but on the inside something was eating him up. I will ascend, I will exalt, I will be like the Most High. Now, 
Let's go to another book, Ezekiel chapter 28. That's going to be page 830. Turn in your right, turn to the right in your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14. Ezekiel chapter 28, that's going to be page 830 in your pew Bible, 830, the very bottom of the page, and it goes over to 831, but Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're going to start with verse 14. Here the prophet is describing the same thing that Isaiah described, the same individual. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, a cherub is an angel. And he says, you were one of those. Apparently the one that covers. Now, later on, we're going to get into the, the sanctuary, and we're going to see that the, on earth there's a replica of God's throne, and it was called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of it was the Ten Commandment Law of God, and on the lid there were these two angels. They had their wings spread out, and in the midst of those two angels, on what is on the lid of this Ark of the Covenant is what's called the mercy seat, which I praise the Lord that his throne is called the mercy seat and not like the seat of judgment or damnation, you know, the mercy seat. But apparently it had these angels that covered it. And according to Scripture, this fallen being was one of those, an ordained minister in the courts of God, if you will. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. And in what condition was he made? Verse 15. You were, what's that word? Perfect in your ways. Did God create sin? No, he created a perfect being. But what happened? You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. So in other words, we're talking about a created being here. He's not the creator. This is not God, but one of his creatures. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found. And iniquity is another word for sin. Till iniquity was found, and what was the location? In you. Remember Isaiah 14, for you've said, in your heart, I will ascend, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And apparently sin was found in him. Now let's think about that. Again, God is the only one who can see in to people. Now, we can see the outward manifestation. We can have a pretty good guess of what's going on inside of you, but only God can read the heart. And here the Lord, you can imagine, scanning out of the, who knows how many millions of beings he's created, but here at the right-hand covering chair of this ordained minister in the courts of God, he sees into his heart, and what was on the outside didn't match with what was on the inside. On the outside, it's, oh, it's praise to you, God. Oh, it's so wonderful, glory, happy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But on the inside, I will ascend. I will, I will be like God. Hmm. An enemy has done this. By the way, watch this now. Verse 16 continues the story. By the abundance of your, and this is a weird word, trading. In fact, in some versions, if you have a King James version of the Bible, it says, by the abundance of your merchandise. It's like commerce. It's selling something. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence. And where was the violence? Within. And you sinned. So apparently he was merchandising, selling something 
around, and it filled him with violence. The more he sold it, the more he peddled it, the more he came to believe it, the more angry he became, and that inside started to rot and rot further away. And it says, Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Notice it doesn't destroy him altogether, just he loses his job. He was fired. He was removed. What was going on with him? Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And this is of paramount importance. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might, what's it say? Gaze at you. That they might gaze at you. What's a synonym for gaze? Look. What's another one? Stare. Right? I want them to zone in. I want them to hone in right on you. Zoom in on you. I want them to gaze at you. To look at you. In fact, put your finger there and go right back to where we were in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 14. You'll notice a striking similarity between these two passages. Already there's a reference to the sin being within him in his heart. And both talk about him simply being removed instead of being destroyed. He was cast out instead of blotted out of existence. But now watch this. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 16, notice the same language. Those who see you will what? Gaze at you and do what? Consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Now what's fascinating about this to me is Isaiah and Ezekiel both describe the same experience in heaven. That there was a perfect created being, no sin, no evil, no iniquity whatsoever, but inside of him, within his heart, started to stir these selfish ambitions. I will exalt, I will ascend, I will be like the Most High. And apparently he peddled this thinking around. And the more he talked about it, the more subtle and crackly he put it out there, the more he came to believe it, and it became not just jealousy, but it became violence. According to Scripture, you were filled with violence within. Notice it's still all within. And therefore, I cast you as a profane thing. And he says why he was cast out instead of being blotted out. It's so those who knew you could have a chance to look at you and consider you. And of course, some synonyms for consider are think, ponder, ruminate, meditate. Basically, apparently, the Lord cast this being out of heaven instead of simply destroying him out of existence so that other people could have a chance to see what was going on. Now think about this back to our parable. They saw, the workers, the servants, the reapers, saw that there were some tares among the wheat. And he says, they say, do you want us to go and pluck them up? And he says, no. Lest while you do so, you'll uproot the wheat with them. Apparently there's a plan. There's a reason for what we see. So again, we come to the bottom of our Worksheet here, Lucifer was cast out of heaven so others would gaze at him and consider him. Apparently in the Lord's dealing with this evil problem, this problem of evil, 
everyone having an opportunity to look and see and understand and think for themselves is of utmost importance. Have you ever thought about this? God cares what you think. Your thought process is important to the Lord. It's a big deal to Him that He gives you an opportunity to think for yourself. That's going to be a huge key as we continue on. Let's go to the other side. Revelation chapter 12, page 1182. Revelation chapter 12, page 1182. We're going to start with verse 7. We see the third description of this casting out of Lucifer, who of course is now known as the devil or Satan, this enemy who has done this. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And this time it doesn't talk about casting out so much as it says, and what's that word? War broke out in heaven. Notice again the location. It always starts where? In heaven. Apparently the problem of this earth didn't start on this earth. It started in heaven. And war broke out in heaven. Now, you might be thinking, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It said that he sinned in his heart. And the only thing he was doing was merchandising, selling stuff. Apparently the violence was within, but this says that there was war. Well, yes, it does, but let me tell you an interesting thing. In Greek, that word war, that English word, that three-letter war, in Greek the word is polemos, P-O-L-E-M-O-S. You can have this little extra in your side notes if you want. But that's where we get our English word polemic, which is a, the dictionary definition of polemic is a strong verbal or written attack against someone or something. It's an argument, okay? It's a verbal attack. It's an oratory. It's a, it's a line of reasoning. Basically, you can see that war broke out in heaven. God had his way of doing things, and this enemy rises up and has other ideas. And he says, no, 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 no. I know that you know God and his ways, but let me tell you something. Have you noticed that all of the songs here are about him? Where's the song about you? And they're like, well, I mean, I guess it is all about him. Have you noticed it's always his rules? Glory to him. He sits on the throne. Everything here is about him. When's it going to be your time? Friends, he wants to keep you in subjection. I want to give you freedom. Apparently, people are like, hmm. Now, that's interesting. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Obviously, dragon and Michael, these are representative words of other beings. This is the book of Revelation with a lot of descriptive language, but it's going to tell us in a minute who these characters are. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So notice what was the result of the war. They were cast out. They were removed. So, verse 9, the great dragon was cast out. And notice what it describes this. It tells us who the dragon is. That serpent of old, which we're going to come back to in a moment, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Jesus in his parable said, an enemy has done this. And who did he say that enemy was? The devil. And he says, this is that being who causes all of these problems. It's not my fault, it's his. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, 
who deceives, this is going to be crucial, deceives. Notice he doesn't necessarily persecute and oppress and harm his most frequently used and most successful uh, method of winning people to his side is not brute force. It's deception. This is going to be laying a framework for a lot of where we're going in this series. Who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Notice this. The war in heaven was not a war of weapons. I mean, could you imagine what would heaven look like? I mean, literally were there bodies, angelic bodies strewn across the streets? Were there gutted out mansions and bombs and fighter jets? Come on now. No. It wasn't a war of weapons. It was a war of words. It was basically a political campaign, if you will. God and his government versus the enemy and his new ideas. God's rules versus the supposed freedom of the new way of doing things. Fascinating. And here, the Lord doesn't destroy him. Now, you can imagine, if you will, why that would be a difficulty. We're going to come back to this more tomorrow night. But here the Lord has a beautiful, harmonious universe. And you can imagine they're all coming together to worship the Lord and everything is great. They're singing these anthems and it's beautiful and it's melodious and it's glorious. And here the eye of God, which not only sees the outside but also sees the inside like a, like a living x-ray machine, right? Scans over the universe and there's harmony within and without. Everyone's outside matches with their inside. The joy that they're expressing on their mouth is actually found in their heart and it's wonderful until he gets around to that covering cherub right next to his throne. And on the outside it's praise God from whom, right? But on the inside it's like I should be there. I'm going to be in your place. Now, imagine, if you will, the Lord says, wait, 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 stop. There's a discordant note in the kingdom of God. And everyone, of course, God says stop, so everybody stops. They go, oh, okay. It's interesting. We, know, we don't usually stop in the middle of the song, but okay. And he says, Lucifer, I need you to come forward. Oh, yes, how can I help you, Lord? I'm your right-hand man. What can I do for you? And he says, you can drop the act. I've seen into your heart. And you know that the wages of sin is death. And right there, in front of the whole attending congregation, the Lord takes the very life of that angel. And then he turns and said, all right, let's, hymn, let's sing hymn number three. Eight. Go back. And just picks up like nothing had happened. Do you think the angels would have any questions? Like, whoa, 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 slow down. <laughs> I mean, we love you, Lord, but, huh? <laughs> what would you say just, what happened? The Lord in his wisdom allows time so that everyone can see, so they can gaze at him and consider him for themselves. But we're going to come back to that tomorrow night, but I want to put that picture in your head. By the way, that war that was in heaven shifts down to the earth. Let's go back to page one, Genesis chapter one. 
Remember it referred to this devil as the serpent of old who deceives the whole world? Genesis chapter 1, when it goes back to the description of God's creation of the world, one of those things he created was humanity, male and female. And notice how he creates them. Much the same way he created Lucifer. In a perfect place, in a perfect condition. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in whose image? Our image. He didn't make man in the devil's image. He made him in our image. According to our likeness. And then watch this. Let them have, what's that word? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he gives them dominion, that is rulership. Now, did the first human beings, Adam and Eve, did they actually create the world? No, they were part of the creation, right? But they were the crowning act of creation, and God says, okay, you are going to be entrusted with stewardship, rule over this place. Now, I am the creator, I'm the sovereign, but you in my place will rule this place. You'll have dominion over the whole earth. So that's what happens. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, made them into a team, a family, Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And here's our word again, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created humanity with with the intention of having him rule over this world, to have dominion over it. But of course, Genesis chapter 3 comes along. Verse 1. Now the, what's that word? Remember in Revelation, the other end of the Bible refers to the devil as the serpent of old? This is where we're introduced to this serpent. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? Now, by the way, regardless of what he says next, do you notice what he's starting to do? He's injecting a little seed of doubt into God's good field. Has God really said? Did he actually say? Has God indeed said? And then what does he say? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, if you go back over the record, of course God didn't say you could. In fact, they were supposed to eat exclusively of the trees of the garden. There's just one that was forbidden them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he twists God's word paints him in a light as a restrictor, someone who doesn't have your best interests in mind. And of course, verse 2, And the woman said to the servant, We may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So notice, there's a political campaign. God's law and his way says this, The serpent of old who deceives the whole world says, you will not surely die. Now, which one is more appealing, die or not die? Right, if I was given that option this morning, would you rather die or not die? I would choose not die. And it makes, oh, God's word says die, but this new one says you will not surely die. I'd like to hear more about that. And that is what it says. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, verse 5, for God knows. By the way, the implication is God knows and he hasn't told you. 
He's withheld something from you. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Open. You're going to see new things. You're going to ascend to new heights. And you will be like God. In what way? Knowing good and evil. You can know good and evil. You don't have to have some arbitrary person, being, telling you this is right or this is wrong or eat from this or don't eat from this or this tree versus that tree. You can decide for yourself. You can be free. God doesn't want your eyes open. He wants to restrict you. He wants to constrain you. He wants to withhold you. But I'm giving you freedom. You will not surely die. And apparently that sales pitch was pretty effective. Because watch what happens in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food, the tree was good for food, so notice that she starts not trusting what God had said, but starts trusting in what she has seen. She starts to evaluate good and evil for herself. Well, let me take a look at this tree. Regardless of what God has said, I'll do my own inspection. Yep, it's good for food. It does have fruit on there, and it's very pleasing to the eye. It's not some smelly, toxic, degraded thing. It's a gorgeous, splendid tree. It's good for food that was pleasing to the eye and a tree desirable to make one what? There is some wisdom that God is withholding from me. I need to violate his law in order to have the freedom that has been promised me by this serpent. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Let's go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. There's a timeless principle, page 1089, Romans chapter 6. There's this very simple, timeless principle that the Apostle Paul articulates in Romans chapter 6. And it simply goes like this, Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Again, that's page 1089 in your few Bibles. Do you not know, and he writes this as though it's common sense, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Notice you're either going to obey God and be his slave and his servant, or you're going to obey sin and be its slave and its servant. But you're going to be ruled by someone and you simply get to choose who's going to be your ruler, who's going to be your master, who you're going to answer to. And he says, as soon as you obey one, you become that one's slave. And that makes total sense. If you have two people calling you in different directions, come over here, the other one says, no, no, come over here, your decision will determine whose voice you're going to obey. And if the one that says go left, you go left, aha, then, that next, then he's going to tell you to take another turn and another turn. You're just going to follow that one around. You become his servant. Whoever you obey is your master. Very simply. And in this instance, God was no longer their master. But they gave their loyalty, their allegiance, their fidelity over to a different ruler. Go back to chapter 4 of the book of Luke. Let me show you this fascinating thing. The devil himself admits this, by the way. The devil walked up to Jesus Christ and literally said all of the things we just talked about. Made it more succinct and compact, but watch this now. Luke chapter 4. It's going to be page 994 in your pew Bible. 994. Luke chapter 4. 
When Jesus came as a human being, the devil met him in person and contended with him, trying to get him to sin, the same way he tried to get Adam and Eve to sin. And notice what he says in verse 6. And the devil, which of course was the enemy that Christ said, and the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you. So he shows him the whole world and he says, look, I'll give you the authority to run this place. And their glory. And why can he give this away? That's not an empty promise, by the way. It's a real thing. It's a real deal. All of this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me. He says, the reason I have the keys to the place is because they handed it over to me. Now, the people that you gave dominion to decided to obey me, and in so doing, they gave me the keys to the place. They gave me the authority, and here, Christ, I'm willing to give it to you for free. Well, almost for free. You don't have to go to Calvary. You don't have to die for people's sins. You don't have to suffer all that humiliation. I tell you what, all you have to do is just bow down and worship me one time. You obey me too. We'll make up for that little spat we had in heaven, and you'll admit you were wrong and I was right. Watch what he says. And I give it to whomever I wish. And I choose to give it to you, Jesus your lucky day. Verse 7, therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Don't worry about Calvary or Gethsemane. Don't worry about the cross and the nails. You just, we'll just make a shortcut. Of course, Jesus doesn't take him up on his deal. But you can see the enemy who has done this deceives the whole world, basically paints God as the bad guy and himself as the one looking out for your best interest, your freedom. And apparently even angels have followed him, and thus other angels have some questions. Hey, why don't we just take care of this problem right here, right now? The disciples were thinking that, and Jesus gave the parable of the sower with the wheat and the tares. And they came to him, tell us about this one. This is kind of scratching where we're itching. We need to understand this. Now, let me draw this to a conclusion here. Page 906. In the book of Nahum, even those who might be biblically literate might need the page number for that one. Page 906. Notice what Nahum, chapter 1, verse 9 which I believe, I contend, is the biggest promise in all the Scripture, is found in one of the smallest books in all of Scripture. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9 simply says this, What do you conspire against the Lord? What are you thinking against God? He will make an utter end of it. Notice what it is. Affliction, iniquity, transgression, affliction will not rise up a, how many? A second time. Now, has it risen up the first time? Yes. We're living proof of that. But apparently, when it's all done, it will be all done. And he says, after this, it's not going to rise up a second time. Apparently, whatever the Lord is doing to end this problem of evil, he's not trying to put a Band-Aid or a patch or a temporary cure. You know, he's not trying to, as our video talked about, do another stint or put a little bypass 
He wants to actually fix the whole thing systemically, holistically, from the bottom up. And he says, look, I don't know what you're thinking about this whole problem of evil, but I'm telling you, once it runs its course, it will not come up a second time. So whatever he's doing is a permanent fix, not just a temporary patch. So let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Towards the book of Revelation, 1 John chapter 3, page 1169, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. Most people, if you were to ask most Christians, why did Jesus come and die? Why did he come to this earth, be born of a woman, go to Gethsemane and die on Calvary? Why did Jesus do that? And I guarantee you the answer is going to be to save us from sin. Now, I praise the Lord that the Lord does want to save us from sin. But I'm going to put a thought in your mind tonight, but it might be the first time you've ever thought it. But just saving you from sin is not the big picture God has in mind in sending Jesus to this earth. There's something bigger than just getting you into heaven on his mind. Now, I praise the Lord that's part of the package. But watch this now. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of whom? The devil. You see this consistent theme in Scripture. The enemy is the devil. It's not God, it's the devil. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from when? From the beginning. And obviously this is not talking about the beginning of our planet because he was already in play before it was even formed. This is talking about the beginning of all sin problem itself. He's the instigator of. He's the originator. He has sinned from the very beginning. That's his issue. He who sins is the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And watch this now. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Think about that. For this purpose, whatever the devil did at the very beginning, this is the purpose that Jesus Christ was made manifest here. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. What for? That he might destroy the works of whom? Basically, the works of the devil that he started in the beginning in heaven, he has now shifted because he was cast out to this earth. And now God himself has stepped down and said, I'm going to handle this. And he says, I have come here. The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So let's summarize what we've learned tonight. God did not create the devil. And he takes absolutely no responsibility for evil's existence. I love that in the parable, when they ask him, I thought you sowed good seed. How come there's tares? You know what he doesn't say? He's like, yeah, I'm sorry, my bad. He doesn't say like, oops, I let a little sin slip out. No. He says, I didn't do it. An enemy has done that. Now, I can tell you the story of it, but don't look for me for blame. There's an enemy, he's bad, and I am all good, period. No responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't say like, you know, I should have put up a fence. I should have kept watch. I should have done something better. He's like, no, no, no. I've done everything exactly right, and all the blame is on him. An enemy has done this. God created a perfect, there's your word, perfect being who chose to rebel. By the way, that concept of choosing to rebel, that's going to be a big theme throughout the rest of this. Choosing to rebel. Now, because only God can see the heart, once sin began, it had to, the word we're looking for there is mature. Or you can say develop or come to fruition. It had to grow. 
It had to mature so that every created being in God's universe could see the difference between good and evil. Because apparently every created being has a choice to make. And if he were to take away that choice, you wouldn't be a free being. So he simply says, I'm going to get you look for yourself. You choose this day whom you will serve. The choice is yours. And of course, Nahum 1 verse 9, once that great controversy between good and evil is finally ended, rebellion against God will never happen again. Friends, what we're seeing in this world is an all-powerful God, an all-loving God, handling the problem of rebellion not just in a good way or a way, the only way that will ever actually solve the problem. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to dive into that tomorrow night. But what I want you to think about is, okay, what would you do differently? If you were God, what would you do differently? And we're going to come back to that tomorrow night. But the answer to tonight's question, did God create the devil? No way whatsoever, not even an ounce of blame. He says, I didn't do it, an enemy has done this. And he's come here to destroy the works of the devil so that once it's happened once, it'll never happen a second time. Has, tonight's, has it made sense tonight? Was it at least clear? All right, praise the Lord for that. And we're going to leave you tonight with that in your mind, but come back tomorrow night. We're going to talk about God on trial. God on trial tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you exist at all and that your word is true. It's fascinating. You're a, you're a communicator. You don't just create and run away, but you want us to know you. You give us your word. And Lord, we know that Satan doesn't want us to know you. He wants to obscure the truth of your loving character. And so, Lord, help us through this word to understand who you really are and that you did not create evil, that the problems of this world are not by your design. You don't enjoy it, and you are working on solving it, not just in a way, but the only way that will actually solve it for good. Lord, help us to understand your plan and through it come to love you more and more each day. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.